You were listening to College Success Happens with Jesse Mogul, episode 168. Let's get to the show. Oh, this show's the best. The best show. Best show. Best show ever. Welcome to the College Success Habits Podcast. Do you want to triumph through school and have a little fun along the way? Learn habits to help you attain better productivity and hacks to help you slide through classes at any age. Here's your host, college circuit speaker, Jesse Mogul. Welcome back to College Success Habits. I am your host, Jesse Mogul. And as always, it's an honor and a privilege to have you here for the next 30 minutes or so. Okay, last week's episode. Got into some pretty heavy stuff there, right? We're talking about drinking, talking about, you know, in a way we're also talking about drug use, but certainly drinking would be much more prevalent and much more socially acceptable. So that's something that you're absolutely noticing in school. And I could have Googled and researched a bunch of topics, but or a bunch of statistics to say, you know, 33% of people will binge drink, which according to statistics is like four plus drinks per sitting. And I used to laugh at that when I saw it and think, I drink four drinks in the shower at the fraternity house before I even start to get dressed, you know, four drinks. I was like, I had those during lunch in order to, you know, pre-gaming for the nighttime. Um, and, but it, you know, now that I don't drink anymore, I certainly realize how four drinks is a lot for a lot of people. And it's not necessarily a lot for people who drink excessively. And whether you drink excessively or you you consider yourself a moderate drinker or a social drinker or a take-it-or-leave-it drinker, there's a chemical process going on in your brain that created that stuff I was talking about last week, the enhancements, the coping, um, the social motives, right? There's things that are going on in your brain that have created this. And for me, um, you know, we moved around a lot, 12 schools just to get out of high school. And I remember 10 schools, sorry, 10 schools to get out of high school. It was uh, 13. 14 schools before I graduated college. But more importantly, let's stick to the to the pre-college stuff. So 10 schools to get out of high school. We, every year we were moving around, and I did stay in the same um, high schools for two different years, two different spells. So that is what allowed it not to be 12 schools in 12 years. And because of the moving around, I often was making new friends or not making new friends and feeling isolated. Mom was sick a lot. I felt like a bit of a wallflower. I got bullied and picked on. I wasn't good at sports. You know, I was a skinny, scrawny kid. And then I got tall and was just a taller, skinny, scrawny kid with no natural athletic ability that we, you know, dad was always working. So it wasn't like we were tossing the ball around in the backyard. It just wasn't a part of my childhood. But books and being, you know, I'll never forget, you know, playing chess in the library during lunch in middle school because those were my people and that's what I did. And as I got older, especially my senior year in high school, I didn't want to be a wallflower anymore. And in fact, the friends circle that I had my junior year, I completely left behind my senior year because I was invited to be involved in the Glee Club. And whether you think that's cool or not is regardless, because to me, it felt super cool because half the guys in the Glee Club, we were called the Music Men and the Debutines, half of those guys were starters on the high school varsity football team. So all of a sudden, I'm hanging out with some people who are on the varsity football team, and they are nice to me and they like me and they invite me to parties that they're throwing. And next thing I know I'm dating a swimmer and you know, I'm like, Oh my goodness, look, I've got some social credibility. I'm getting invited to things and my girlfriend's extremely pretty. And I'm still the same to me. I was still the same dude. I was 
the year before, still, you know, longer hair and I don't know, scrawny little kid felt awkward in my own body. But because I joined this one group, now all of a sudden I'm accepted into these things. And, you know, one or two beers here or there, didn't drink much in high school. But as soon as college, you know, graduation of high school came about and then college was just three months away, um, I realized that, you know, now I don't have that tiny little group anymore. How am I going to create my own group this summer? And it turns out you call up some girls and call up some guys and say, hey, we're going to do some drinking out here in the woods. Why don't you show up? It's a lot of people going to show up to something like that. And because I was the one who planned it and I was the one who brought the supplies or the one who helped other people get the supplies, it was all of a sudden, you know, I show up and it's like the six human needs are all being met. And we've talked about the six human needs in previous shows. Go and, and locate those again if you're just a little bit curious about how those things will come into play. I believe, if I could find it real fast, um, that it was Six Human Needs, episode 134. And, wow, that was a long time ago. We're at 170. <laughs> well, we're going to be at 170 real soon. So the six human needs are getting fulfilled. And next thing you know, I'm realizing when I get to college that, hey, partying is the way that's going to make me not be a wallflower. I won't be in my dorm doing my laundry on a Friday night. I'll be out partying and having a good time. You know, looking back at it, I would have done some things differently. Probably wouldn't have joined the fraternity right out the gate. I have a lot of great friends from that. It would, have, Who knows what kind of friends I would have otherwise had I not done that. But I do often wonder, you know, what was going on with the people who weren't binge drinking on a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? What What is it they accomplished in school? But that's the past, and now I'm here in my own present, and, and I'm living the life that I've earned for myself. You are currently living in some manner of what I was going through 20 some years ago. And again, not getting on a pulpit, not telling you how to do your business, but just reminding you that if you feel some level of isolation, if you feel some level of disconnection from your peers, then you're going to start to maneuver your way towards places that you will feel accepted. Um, We've seen what social isolation can do to high school kids when it comes to in-school violence and shootings. And we've definitely seen what it can do when it comes to uh, men perpetrating attacks on women because they feel isolated from, you know, uh, members of the opposite sex or members of the human species that they are attracted to who do not want to reciprocate those feelings. We've seen what that will happen. And that's, that's some emotional intelligence there. Learning how to cope with the fact that, okay, not everyone's going to like you, but you can find someone who will, and you don't have to go about things, you know, being blacked out drunk or being violent or aggressive, or you can do things a different way. And so I really just want you to just be mindful that when you get yourself super inebriated, you're putting yourself in a very uh, vulnerable position. And you, and you better hope that the people who you went out with stay on good terms with you as everybody's binge drinking and they don't leave someone behind. Because this is how bad and sad things happen to people when they're out drinking. Right? You might think everything's kosher and cool, and then you find that you get a little bit too tipsy, and now all of a sudden there, there's, there, you know, that's when the, the bullies show up, or that's the perpetrators show up, right? That's when somebody who you thought was cool is no longer cool. So I'm just begging you, just be mindful. This isn't the pulpit. This is me trying to tell you how to do your business. But alcohol and drugs will put you in a state of affairs that you're not always prepared to contend with. And so I would like today to talk about the chemical process that's going on in a way that won't 
bore you. If you want to know more about the sciencey aspect of this, of drinking and drugs and what that does to you, I'm a huge fan of a podcast called Sober Powered. Um, she's a master bio. I think she's got a master's in biology. This woman will bust out some science words I've never even heard before. If you're interested in, in the science of dopamine and serotonin and endorphins, she will certainly uh, give you a lot of more in-depth information about it than I'm going to, because that's not my forte. Mine's more about what the psychology of this is going to be doing to you. That's where that's where my area of expertise, that's where I am a leading voice in, is how this is playing out. So I want you to listen to what's going on in your brain when you do get inebriated. Because you've heard of the words serotonin and dopamine and endorphins. No doubt at some point you've heard about those. And they are famously happy, or they're famously called the happy hormones, right? Because they do promote these positive feelings, right? The pleasure, the happiness, love that you feel is just a chemical reaction in your brain. Now it's elicited because of a myriad of reasons that we've talked about some of them on the show before, but perhaps haven't tried to create a bridge from those points to here. So I'll, I'll say that, let's look at it this way. Your brain is, is a, is a built-in processing machine, your unconscious mind is looking to process millions of bits of data that are thrown at it every single second. And it's going to use some uh, programming processes, uh, deletion, distortion, and generalization. Your brain is deleting things that it doesn't find necessary or useful. Um, it is distorting things and it is generalizing things. Now, your unconscious mind is taking in all this information, but what it believes to be your reality is getting deleted, distorted, and generalized by a lot of different filters that you have just grown up with. How you experience time and space and your attitude, your mood, your environment, your previous experiences and memories, right? Your values, your opinions, your beliefs. That's why we spent so many episodes on those subjects recently. Because these are the way that you're filtering and processing the world around you. So what you think is going on in in the world around you is just being created by your brain. And no two people will ever think the same experience is the same thing. We just, we experience elation and sadness differently. But what our brain does do, similar to all other humans, is how it connects endorphins, dopamine, and serotonin to things that you are doing that it finds either enjoyable or non-enjoyable, right? And so when alcohol hits the body, right, alcohol will naturally begin to release endorphins. It will, it will signal to your brain to release endorphins. Alcohol was made to enhance, Right, so these endorphins are chemicals that the body releases, um, and it, it can do it around pain and stress, but it also releases them during pre- pleasurable activities, um, exercises, massages, eating, sex. I mean, this is where endorphins come to play. Right, they allow you to find pleasure. It's like, wow, this feels good. I want more of this. So when you drink and this and the chemical reaction in your body elicits good feelings, then your brain's like, wow, this feels really, really good. I like this. So endorphins begin to get released because this is an enjoyable activity. I'm catching a buzz. Oh, wow, I'm feeling a little bit lightheaded and a little light of foot. So these endorphins are getting released in the brain, telling you that you're having even more fun than you actually are because of the heightened endorphin levels in your brain. Dopamine comes in because dopamine helps you focus 
on what it is that you find enjoyable. All right, it's a, it, it can be called the motivation hormone. So when dopamine is responsible for allowing you to feel this pleasure, these satisfactions, and this motivation that comes after it. So when you feel good um, having drank a bunch of alcohol, right, and it, it heightens up your endorphins, the dopamine's released to help you focus on how you got to that heightened sense of enjoyment to begin with. So the dopamine kicks in to help you focus on what it was you did in order to feel that endorphin rush that you got. And if it was vodka at your local pub, then you're gonna when you see the local pub next time, your brain's gonna be like, hey, hey, remember last time we were there, we had a great time. Let's go back in there. That's how you end up being a bar fly at the same bar. That's how you end up going back to the same house parties over and over again. Because the dopamine was released along with those endorphins saying, hey, if you're looking for a good time, this was a place that you found it. And in the future, you just begin to generalize that any bar is going to create that for you because, hey, that's where alcohol is served and the brain has connected alcohol to endorphin release. And therefore, the dopamine sees bar, sees liquor store, and it's like, let's go in there. Now, the curious thing is that if you're finding pleasure and satisfaction from getting good grades, your brain, right, if you're studying and you're learning new things and you're like super excited about all this cool new stuff that you're learning and you can't wait to use it in your career in the future, your brain's going to begin to release endorphins because you're finding pleasure in that. It's, it's making you feel good. You're a sense of satisfaction and confidence. All these different things are happening inside your body telling your brain, we're enjoying this. So the brain's like, oh, awesome. Right? The brain knows what to do when it's enjoying something. It's going to release endorphins. So if you enjoy drinking, it's releasing endorphins. If you enjoy studying, it's going to release endorphins. Yes, the levels might be off. They might be slightly different. Right, Doing a bunch of shots at a, at a bar while everybody chants your name is going to release different levels of hormones than sitting quietly in a library studying your science book. But either way, the brain still knows that you're finding some level of enjoyment. And then you go off and you get a good grade on the test. And then the dopamine comes out and says, wow, this feels good. This is pleasurable. Look at this A on this test. Right? Then it locks in the connection. Wow, when I want to get an endorphin buzz, I go to the library, I study a bunch, I come, I get an A on a test, and I get to feel really good. So the dopamine actually gets you to focus on going to the library because that's how good grades happen. So then whenever you see a library, you feel compelled to go in it, right? When you see the library, you're excited about it. You're like, oh, I can't wait. Let's go in the library. Let's study because here comes an A. So the brain actually does this with a ton of things. It's not just alcohol and drugs, right? Go to the gym and, and, and you pump your blood up and you work out and you feel really great about yourself and you look in the mirror and you're sweaty and you're hot and you're like, yeah, I did that. Look what I just did, right? That's releasing endorphins and the dopamine comes out and says, hey, if you want to feel this buzz on your endorphins again, come into this gym and work out like you did. It helps focus you. So you're sitting at home and you're not feeling you know, very good about yourself and you think, you know what? I'm going to go to the gym. I always feel good there. The dopamine's what motivates you off your couch because the dopamine's telling you if you go to the gym, you are going to have an endorphin buzz. The next thing you know, you're going to the gym more often because those two hormones, dopamine and endorphins, have worked together to create that within you.
right? Whenever my mental health starts to slag, when I'm not feeling so great, I know if I go to the gym and I push some pretty heavy weights, then I'm going to, I'm going to feel that rush of blood. The endorphins are going to kick out and release. And the dopamine is going to say, see, told you, this is why we come here. And it's only going to further implant in my brain that going to the gym is a good thing. So in the future, when I'm not feeling great, but I'm also not all that motivated to go to the gym, the brain's going to be like, hey, this lack of motivation you're feeling might have something to do with the fact that you're not going to the gym. So let's just get up, put on your shoes, go there, and let's see what happens. And sure enough, hour and a half later, I'm feeling great. It's endorphins, it's dopamine. That's what's creating this. And they're going to latch on to things that, like the gym and the library, just as much as they're going to latch on to you know, um, liquor and weed and cocaine. It's just what the brain is looking to do. It wants you to feel good. And when you find something that makes you feel good, it is going to be more than happy to set an anchor there so that in the future, the dopamine knows where to push you toward in order to get the endorphin buzz. When serotonin comes into play, and again, there's all the science-y stuff there, but this is very much, uh, it regulates your attention, your behavior, your body temperature, things like that. Um, the way the sober-powered woman talks about this is that serotonin is like, it's like the aggressive hormone. It tells your body how aggressive do you need to be in order to achieve the activity that will create the endorphin buzz, right? So if you can't find alcohol and, you know, all the places are getting ready to close at 2 a.m. and you've got to sprint a mile away from the bar in order to get to the grocery store and get yourself a 12-pack before the place closes, right? Serotonin gets released and says, you need to be aggressive. Get going. And next thing you know, you're sprinting down the street to get to this grocery store. And you're like, wow, I just, I just ran a mile in six and a half minutes. (laughs) I couldn't have ridden. I couldn't have ran a mile in 15 minutes in the middle of the day, but find out that the grocery store is getting ready to close. And all of a sudden, you know, you turn into, you know, uh, some Olympic runner, right? It's the serotonin. It's, it's, it's what it's the aggressive. It's pushing you out there. This is regulates your mood, right? People again will call the serotonin, this natural feel good chemical. But when you think about regulating your attention and your behavior and your body temperature, you know, when you get angry or you get anxious or whenever you really want something, right? Your body temperature kicks up, right? Your pupils dilate. You get very sensory aware. Your behavior gets that much more aggressive. It starts moving you toward that which you want, right? If there's a ton of cookies in the pantry and somebody's like, I'm going to go get a cookie, then there's not going to be a desire for your serotonin to kick up to tell you to be aggressive about getting the cookie first because there's tons of cookie. But there's only one cookie, and all of a sudden somebody's like, I'm going to go eat the cookie, and then you feel this visceral reaction. And I have felt this. I've, I've been knowing this episode was coming. I've been paying attention. Somehow I'm like, oh, I'm going to go eat the last thing. I'm going to do this. All of a sudden, your body, t- my body temperature would go up. My ears would get a little warmer. The blood would, would raise to the surface of my face. Uh, my attention level, all of a sudden, it's like I could hear the cabinet door open and I could hear the cookie bag being taken out of the pantry. It's like I became extremely sensory aware. I, my behavior, I became short and curt, almost to the point where I just wanted to walk in there and be like, no, you've eaten almost all the cookies. I've had two. My cookie. I know I'm using cookies as the example here, which might seem preposterous to you, but I can assure you, if you've got roommates, they have eaten your food and it has pissed you off. And what pisses you off is serotonin. It kicks up and it's like, I'm going to be aggressive right now. 
I told you to not eat my freaking food, and you ate my food anyways. And that, my friends, is how chemicals create your life. (laughs) So in your life, if you're feeling uh, emotionally stable, happy, calm, elated, whenever you have these more desirable emotions, your serotonin levels are even. They are good. Now, depression. Depression. Depression is going to come about because of low levels of serotonin, a lack of serotonin in the body. Right now, this is where alcohol and drugs can really kick your ass the day after, right? Because you've had this amazing endorphin buzz, right? The dopamine has done its its job. It's focused you on wanting to have a good time, so you kept drinking. It focused you on getting from bar to bar. It motivated you to continue the drinking, right? Serotonin's being released because you're having all this fun, and it, it, you're feeling good, and everything's great, and then your brain has been getting all of these um, hormonal reactions happening in it from the alcohol and the drugs, right? I mean, it's like drugs are formulated. I mean, this is even the ones that are natural. They came about because it's like, hey, they were found back in the day. If somebody had smoked some weed 14,000 years ago and it didn't do a damn thing to them, then they wouldn't have kept doing it. Right? Even cigarettes, when you first start smoking tobacco, give you a buzz. They make you a little lightheaded. At some point, you just get so programmed to the nicotine in your body that not having it causes anxiety and withdrawals and stress. So that's why you continue to do the nicotine is because at some point, the body just needs it. You're not feeling the buzz from it anymore, right? Not in the way that you were at first. It might still make you think you're you're relaxing might make you help. It might help you while you're sad or you want to be happier. So you have a cigarette, that enhancement of it. But in reality, it's just giving your brain something to focus on the hand to mouth thing, right? It's like eating. It's putting your hand in towards your mouth is generally going to provide your body and your mind with feel good sensations. You're hungry, put some food in there. You're thirsty. You're you're dehydrated. Great. Give me some water. The hand-to-mouth thing becomes a programmed pattern loop to your brain and your body that when things go into your mouth, you're generally going to enjoy them. Even broccoli. I may not necessarily enjoy the taste of broccoli, but I enjoy that it's going to give me an ample amount of calcium and make my bones stronger and my teeth healthy. So even though I'm not thrilled with the way it tastes, I know that the after effects of having broccoli in my body is going to do good things. So even broccoli is like, okay, may not be enjoying the way this stuff tastes, but just get it over with so you can get back to eating the steak. But I know the broccoli is good for me. So the hand-to-mouth thing is what creates this experience of good things happening to body. Right, and that's where cigarettes and alcohol—that's more of the hand to mouth. So it just gets looped in with food and beverages like water, because it's like, well, you know what? Putting my hand in my mouth and good things happen. Now you continue to drink and you continue to overdrink, and next thing you know, you find the adverse effects coming in. You wake up the next day and you have low levels of serotonin because your brain wasn't felt like it didn't need to produce it anymore uh, because the alcohol and the dopamine, the endorphins were making you feel so great. So it it slowed down the production of the serotonin. Plus you burnt through all your serotonin while you were partying, right? We used to take ecstasy back in the day and uh, I would take like these synthetic serotonin. um, I can't remember what the name of them was. I think it was called 5-HTP. Um, it was like these synthetic, like serotonin, they were like called mood enhancement pills. And all it did was like flood your body back full of serotonin. Um, and so I remember taking those like throughout the night while I was partying just to try to keep myself dancing it up and around. I was 
frying through, just burning through endorphins and dopamine and serotonin. You wake up the next day and you feel horrible. You feel horrible because you've depleted your brain of endorphins and dopamine and serotonin. Like you're, you're just, you're, it's done. You're, you're cashed. And this is where the hangover comes in, right? The brain's completely screwed up because you've over and you've overstimulated it. You've done things that it's just not prepared for. Sex is the most natural thing you can do to, to release endorphins, dopamine, and serotonin into your brain. When you start getting into things like cocaine and meth and heroin, these will release dopamine and endorphins and serotonin at a level that the human body just cannot comprehend. I remember when I had somebody talk about the science of addiction on my sobriety show, um, she was saying it was like, you know, cocaine can up your, your dopamine release and endorphin release by like 300% and meth can do it like 1500%. So no wonder people who get really addicted to drugs all of a sudden don't care about sex anymore, which to the body is the number one way to release a hundred percent of your dopamine to like get as high as high can be. It's sex. But you start putting a chemical in your body that can triple or 15 X that sensation. Is it any wonder people get hooked on this stuff because of what it's doing in the brain? So when you wake up the next day and you're super hungover, it's because you've burned through, you've depleted all of these hormones, these chemicals in the brain. And it's going to take your, your brain some time to re-up those. And the longer you do these drugs, the longer that you maintain this, this habit of using alcohol and drugs, the less likely your brain is, is going to be able to produce endorphins, dopamine, and serotonin to get you back to this homeostasis, to get you back to a balance. Your brain's going to get convinced that it needs the beer, it needs the drugs in order to uh, feel the endorphins, to make the dopamine, to have the serotonin. It's going to believe this alcohol, this drug, this chemical compound, it needs it in order to feel this way. It's like when a bodybuilder takes steroids, it shoots them a ton of uh, testosterone and it messes with, let's just go with men here, it messes with their testosterone and it messes with their estrogen. And that's why whenever you come off of steroids, you have to take like um, estrogen pills to make sure that because your body will have shut off its natural production of testosterone. And meanwhile, there's all this estrogen that's being produced. So bodybuilders will lose a lot of their gains if they don't take some sort of estrogen inhibitor. Right? So the body, the, the body is shut down producing testosterone because it's been getting fed so much testosterone externally, right? And so when you come off of the steroids and it's no longer getting the testosterone, the body is going to take some time to begin to create the testosterone again. But it's in that period of time that the gains can go away, the estrogen buildup can start to wear on the muscles, and all of a sudden all the work that that bodybuilder did was for naught, was for nothing, because it takes some time for the body to switch on its natural production of testosterone. It's happening similarly with alcohol and drugs. The body is no longer naturally producing endorphins and dopamine and serotonin the way that it used to because it's been getting this external chemical that's been doing it for it. So if you do drink super heavy and you come off of alcohol or drugs and you wonder why you feel anxiety and you've got the shakes and you're foggy, it's because the body is not feeling good. It's going through withdrawals. 
It doesn't have the natural endorphin and dopamine and serotonin creation patterns that it had previously. So where it could normally step in and begin to release some endorphins, have the dopamine and serotonin help out in order to get you feeling normal, quote unquote normal, it's not producing those the way that it used to. And so it can't get you back to this balanced feeling. So your body starts to crave what was getting it to the balanced feeling, which was the alcohol and drugs. And studies will say a lot of different things, but generally about two, four, six weeks, your brain starts to produce these things better than it was when you first quit. This is why most treatment centers keep people in there for about 30 to 60 days, because that's the amount of time it takes for the brain to begin to create these hormones um, back to an optimal level to even the, the person out. Now, if they've been an alcoholic for 22 years, like I was, yes, it took me months to start to really feel even again and actually feel like, oh my goodness, everything is back to quote unquote normal, but it had been so many years since I even felt that version of normal when I was 17 years old in high school that I wasn't even really sure what I was supposed to be feeling. So there was a lot of learning for me of just what feeling normal was and being like, okay, not every day is going to be like a roller coaster ride. Yes. I used to go to the shopping mall with a you know vodka poured in a water bottle and just walk around and just get smashed off vodka. And that made me happy and carefree. And I'd spend a bunch of money on stupid crap I didn't want and wake up the next day and be like, what the hell did I buy all this stuff for? It looks silly. Right. All of a sudden I started going to the mall sober and I wasn't spending money on dumb stuff. I'd go to the bowling alley and getting a strike didn't feel as cool because I wasn't going over there and and chugging a beer like I did in college. It took some learning and getting used to of what just normal happiness feels like. I can go to an amusement park and enjoy the hell out of that experience. Is it the same as going on a couple of hits of acid? Of course it's not. Right, because we're not shutting down serotonin <laughs> creation here and hallucinating. Right, the the brain is releasing a normal amount of endorphins and dopamine. It's riding a roller coaster is not as enjoyable as sex, so it's shutting down the production of some of these things. Uh, it did when I was drinking. Right, so now it's just creating a normal flow pattern of endorphins and dopamine and serotonin release. And no, riding a roller coaster is not going to be as amazing as having sex and and and, and having that physiological reaction to the you know to that combination of two human bodies together so it's like oh this is what normal happiness feels like and it is something that takes some getting used to especially if you have been drinking or using drugs for a prolonged period of time but now you can at least understand why this has been classified now as a disease right people will say well it's not a disease like cancer well alcoholism and drug addiction can be passed down hereditary it does get in the brain and begin to manipulate the cell structure, right? And it it does create something going on inside the body that regardless of how much logical thinking you might try to put at it, the body's still like, I I hear all that, but I still want to get wasted. This is why addiction is a disease, and this is why it's something that that we can begin to embrace as a part of our mental health, having these conversations, stepping into a space where we're not trying to judge somebody for their drinking and drug use, but instead we're trying to understand what's going on inside their mind that is causing them to continue going back to a poison that's killing them. If you or someone that you care deeply about abuses alcohol and drugs, you at least know a little bit more about the science now to understand that there's something that's actually happening inside the brain that is creating this desire to use, right? And yes, it's not going to be easy at first to cut back or to quit altogether, but it will get easier as time moves forward. 
And if you're looking to enhance or cope or be socially active and, and alcohol and drugs seem to be what's going on in order for you to achieve those things, now we can start to dive into more of the psychology of it. Nothing that you have done to yourself is something that you can't undo. Right? It, it's I, I people used to tell me I was destroying my brain because of the amount of hallucinogenics I ate, and I find myself to be pretty bright at forty six. Right? Who knows where my life would have gone had I not used all those drugs and, and drank all that alcohol, but I did what I did. And perhaps in some way, shape, or form, you hear this and you just say, you know what, I'm just no more Thursday nights or no more Wednesday nights or you know what, tonight I'm only going to have four or five instead of ten. Whatever. This, it, this may just give you more information that you then go and use as funny trivia while you're getting hammered at the local saloon <laughs> next time you're there. I don't know what you're going to do with this information. But I've been beating around the bush about this for far too long. Drinking is where people put themselves in situations that they're pretty much not prepared for. When I, when I say drinking, I mean that hardcore drinking. And you are creating habits right now in your youth that you are going to be contending with in your 20s and 30s and 40s. And it's not that you need to change anything that you're doing because I have no idea what you're doing. I'm just giving you information so that you can begin to ask yourself, is this really what I want to be doing with my time? Is this really what I want to be doing with my life? I'm not sure I would have listened to somebody like me whenever I was 18 to 22 how I knew what I was doing was killing me when I was 25 and 30, and I still kept doing it. But there was always a part of me that knew if I was ever going to fully achieve my meant-to-be-in-life, fully raise to the expectations my family had for me, fully reach my potential, that I was going to have to walk away from alcohol at some point in my life in order to even begin to sniff that level of success. And I have wildly succeeded in my sobriety and recovery these last six years. And I have so much further to go. And at least I'm able to experience it day in and day out with a clear mind, a clear head, a clear heart, and a clean body. What I do with all that each and every day, that's the wonders of life. And remember, it's 50-50 out here. Some days are good and some days are bad. But I can promise you, it's a hell of a lot more fun and way easier to deal with the bad days because I'm sober. It's not sobriety that sucks. It's just life sometimes. And even whether something sucks or it's great, that's all in the mindset. And I think we've covered that one a lot on this show. Hope this helps, my friends. Just be mindful. Just, you know, say something nice to yourself today. Do something good for yourself today. And if you're turning to alcohol and drugs to enhance or to cope or to be feel socially accepted, just question those behaviors. Ask yourself, do you really want to be friends with these people? Is this really the kind of people you want to be around if the only way they're going to be accepting of you is by you know, getting yourself so smashed and inebriated that you act the fool? What are you trying to cope from? You know, What are you trying to run away from? Because I can assure you, whatever you're trying to run away from is way faster than you, and it will catch you eventually. And yes, I understand enhancement, but I'll tell you what. Nothing is more fun than getting off a roller coaster and knowing that the joy I feel is all me and my brain's creation (laughs) and no outside influences other than that roller coaster were necessary for me to feel this way. Inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy, release and flow. See you next week, my friends. Bye-bye.